Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 40% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. So I don't know about you guys. I've been using computers for a long time. And I've noticed like whenever I delete an email, a window comes up and says, are you sure you want to delete this email? Or like when I'm removing a file from my computer, are you sure you meant to remove that file? Did you mean to send this email without an attachment? Right. I would think that similar technology by now would have migrated to systems used to issue, issue public warnings of ballistic missile threats. Are you sure you want to <laughs> issue that ballistic missile threat alert? Do you I, think the I actual... Again, like, <laughs> I mean, can't when, there be like a little boop boop? <laughs> <laughs> when you accidentally oh, reply all, there's no are you sure you want to reply all, which is when we really need it. It's true. <laughs> See, on the, the maybe, same people making that function are making that damn thing in Hawaii. That's may, what it is. You know, maybe the issue is that... that uh, there was that function, but he had a pop-up blocker. <laughs> I think there actually was that function, and he clicked yes. Look, the thing I'm concerned then about is... Then there should be an, are you really sure? Are you super duper sure? No, dude. Um, really. Look, my concern is, whenever you actually launch the missile, is there a, are you actually <laughs> sure you want to launch this missile thing? And how about uh, one to your neighbor is... Are, is he saying right. <laughs> like button? Are you sure? We're gonna send you a verification phone to your phone before you can launch yeah. this missile. Two-step verification. Hello and welcome to Rational Security, the Are You Sure edition. I'm Shane Harris, sheltering in place reporter. Where would you shelter in place? I was thinking about that. If I got an alert on my phone. That missile was heading for Washington. I mean, like, I guess the basement. Yeah, yeah it you know, depends what place you're in. Yeah, shelter in place, right? What if you're like the place I'm in right now is just not working for me? It's like <laughs> a depressing Walmart or something, or right. like well, then you've a got traffic it. circle, which are just miserable. At least they were in Hawaii. I mean, that doesn't seem so bad. You got to die somewhere. I'm thinking, like, you know, if yeah, exactly. If you're like just basically on the beach. I mean, you're like, oh, whatever. I'm just I, I'll shelter here. I yeah. could swim out a little ways. <laughs> uh, I'm here in the Toasty Jungle studio on a snowy day in Washington with my friends Tamara Kaufman, Ben Wittes, and Susan Hennessy. Hi, guys. Hi. Hi. Are you sure we're here? Are you sure? You're Are here? you sure you want to tape this podcast? <laughs> Are you sure? I ask myself that every week. <laughs> <laughs> Are you sure you downloaded the right podcast? Uh, this week on the show, Hawaii authorities mistakenly warn citizens they're about to be hit by a nuclear missile. The FBI. A ballistic missile. A ballistic they missile. They didn't say it was nuclear. Oh, that's that, true. That's just people I'll change that for the that. show page so that we don't get angry emails. The FBI warned Jared Kushner about his relationship with a prominent Chinese American, and we'll have updates on L'Affaire Russe. Russe. Part Roll of the, that R. Virginia Heffernan and my campaign. It has to, taken to on. make this take off. Now, John yeah, Berman used only it on CNN the now. other day. Yeah, I think so this it's, is it's like, happening. I, if I if if I 
get hit by an incoming ballistic missile, but I have normalized the use of La Faire Russe to yeah. describe the Trump-Russia controversy. That's your I, legacy, Ben. I, uh, you know, that. And you already had benevolence temper, wait, malevolence, malevolence temper by incompetence. Yeah. I mean, Those you've got two. my two great coinages of You've the got two. You have more than any man should rightfully expect to have in a life. All right, let's talk first about, let's talk about the Hawaii Thursday. So we're making light of this, obviously, and I think there has been some reporting that there may have actually been a kind of redundancy in the system. Susan was mentioning to, like, <clears throat> try and stop this guy from issuing a white alert. But first I want to just ask the question. There's been a lot of debate in the past you know, week that it's been now of whether these alert systems even, you know, whether we even need them. If a, if a nuclear missile were actually heading for Hawaii, some people who live there said in interviews, what are we going to do about it? We're all going to be gone. We're, you know, if it hits us, we're dead. What's the point? I mean, tomorrow, let me kick this to you because, I mean, you know, there are other examples in countries, too, of these kinds of warning systems being pretty effective. But, like, what do you think about the idea of whether there even should be some, such a system in place to begin with? Well, frankly, I think it would be irresponsible not to have such a system in place. And I think that it has specific utility both for those who would need to be first responders in the instance of a missile strike and for the public at large. I mean, look, I'm old enough to remember um, missile drills and duck and cover drills, which, believe it or not, we did in Michigan in the 1980s. Um and you can say what? <laughs> yeah, yeah. what? <laughs> yes, we did. We were all, in New York in the eighties. We were already making fun of them and talking about it as a fifties thing. Yeah, well, you guys were always culturally ahead of the Midwest. Twelve-year-old Tammy is so uncool. <laughs> <laughs> Sorry, guys, I'm really retro. <laughs> but look, here's the thing: when a, when you get a missile incoming, you don't know what's on the warhead. Mm-hmm. Um, and having people shelter is just good sense. Uh, now, I remember actually being in Israel after Saddam Hussein invaded Iraq when he was threatening to throw chemical-tipped missiles at Israel. Um, and the Israelis had the dilemma of wanting to warn the public and trying to educate people as to what to do. But it really matters what's on the warhead in terms of how people respond. Some chemical agents sink through the air, some rise, right? And so without knowing what's on the warhead, there's only a limited amount of guidance you can give people. But um, it does make sense to try and hunker down, avoid shrapnel, uh, avoid having a building collapse on top of you. Avoid the bl- flash of the blast if it right. were nuclear. Um, so that's for the public. And I think, you know, in the Hawaii case, say it takes 30-odd minutes for uh, from warning to strike. That's enough time for civil defense, for first responders to mobilize. A lot of those people are civilians, you know, firefighters and whatever. And a half an hour is enough time for them to start to prepare to respond. So I think it's very useful. Ben. Yeah, I agree with that. And a cup and Hawaii is a good first of all, you, you don't know if what's on the missile is nuclear as as Tamara says. But you also don't know what the blast range of it is, whether it's nuclear or not. And there's some perimeter of the blast range where you will be hurt or killed or incinerated if you are above ground and you may not if you're at the periphery. And there's some extended distance beyond that where uh, you will not be 
hurt or killed by the blast itself, but you could be very, uh, you know, uh, killed or or made very sick relatively quickly by fallout. Um, and, you know, the, the idea that we assume that one missile coming in is nuclear and a with nuclear and accurate, right? What if it lands a few miles off in the sea and goes off, right? It's not like Kim Jong-un is like the best producer of accurate missiles in the world. Um, and the idea that it, we know that it's nuclear, that it's accurate, and that the blast is strong enough to destroy the entire state of Hawaii, right? You don't know. Is it, is it at Maui? Is it at Honolulu? Is it at the Big Island? You don't know any of these answers to these questions. So the idea that you can save a lot of lives by having as many people shelter as possible is just good sense. And I don't, I don't begrudge Hawaii at all having a system like that, that they should be uh, careful about when having that are you sure screen pop up, though. Yeah, so I, I tend to agree with that, right? So just like places that are routinely hit by tornadoes or hurricanes or anything else needs to have a warning system in place. I don't think there's anything ridiculous or, right, we shouldn't just take sort of like a, you know, fatalistic view of the whole thing of don't do anything. We um, did drill for tornadoes, too, by there the way. There you go. Yeah, we did Tammy too. was very safe. <laughs> she was ready, you guys. Um, but I do think that this shows sort of a top-to-bottom failure of governance on a couple of different metrics. The first is the systems, like warning systems are are totally useless if people don't know what to do. And it's clear from the responses that whether or not the warning systems, you know, were were designed appropriately or not, the people who received them did not know what to do in that situation. And Which so- Which is surprising because they've been drilling publicly for a while. Exactly. So it doesn't, it sort of doesn't matter what the nature of the warning is, is if it's a tornado drill, if it's whatever it is, you can warn people. And if they all look at each other and say, well, what the heck are we supposed to do, then the warning hasn't served its purpose, right? The warning is supposed to be in order for people to take steps. And so that just shows that wherever we are, there has not been sufficient a sufficient public education campaign. Uh, people haven't been warned to prepare, right? So there's that 30 minutes or 12 minutes or however long you have. But then there's also, you know, right, the government is supposed to be encouraging people through systems, you know, uh, what is it, 72 on you is what FEMA tries to say, um, you know, that you're supposed to have supplies and right, sort of that that public education. There's also the issue of a system design. So it does sound as though there was that thing that popped up that said, are you sure? But the guy just clicked it because that's because we always click. We click those warnings all the time. And that's so, why there's nothing left on your hard drive, Susan. <laughs> exactly. It's wiped. It's gone. Um, right. And so any system that like, you know, you could sort of blame it on this one guy that clicks it twice. Any system that can be foiled that easily is the system is the issue, not the person. If you haven't guarded against that kind of human error. I think that what we sort of what we saw in the interim was also such a breakdown of communication. You had the alert go out. You didn't have any system in place to correct it rapidly. You had Tulsi Gabbard tweeting out that she had talked to somebody and it was it it wasn't real. You had the NORAD uh, PR person saying he hadn't heard anything, but he would get back to people. He had I'll to go check. To check. <laughs> 
So while it looked as though it should only take me 45 minutes. What's your deadline? Quick quick, quick question though. What does NORAD checking mean? The big board. Like they scan some radar. It's on the big board. They're taking down the Santa tracker and they're like, wait a minute. Do they look up in the sky for a while? (laughs) I don't see anything. But look, it does does sound as though DOD procedures worked fine whenever this warning went out. DOD was able to very rapidly assure itself that there were no warnings on its indicator systems. But there was sort of no, uh, just the degree of public confusion. You could see if this were to happen again, either as a, you know, as a false alarm or in the real case, how would anybody know, right? You'd have a bunch of reporters incinerated on the phone as they're trying to, like, you know, confirm whether or not this is real. And so I think if there's damage, you know, a lot of people pointed to, like, oh, Trump could have been on Twitter and he would have launched a counterattack. I don't think that's like a probable, no. you know, the, the probable risk. The risk is that when you have screw ups like this that reveal just kind of the mass lack of communication, the next time you put the warning out, people are going to assume that it's a false alarm and they're going to ignore it. And so they're not going to take whatever measures you want them to take. So this then leads, you mentioned the, the failure of governance here. So the next question becomes accountability. And I'm sure that, you know, there is going to be a, um, you know, I'm sure that as there already is a, a call for people to be held accountable, to be punished, to be perhaps dismissed. I mean, that's going to make people feel a lot better. Um, I don't know that it will entirely solve the problems that Susan is illuminating here. But like, what do you guys think is the important accountability uh, procedure here? I mean, something clearly has to be done to assure people in Hawaii that this is being taken seriously and it's not likely to happen again. Yeah, absolutely. So I think a good model here is to is to look at the way NASA and other kind of science-focused institutions deal with failure because Susan's exactly right. When there's a failure like this, you can always point to sort of the proximate point of failure, which in this case was clicking the wrong thing on the screen. Um, but, that, but if you uh, respond only to that, you are not just missing an opportunity, you're wrong because there's a systems failure that leads to that point of failure. And so, you know, with a shuttle disaster, you can say, okay, well, it was this loose tile. But it wasn't just the loose tile. It was all the inspections. It was all the um, quality controls on the tile manufacturer that led up to that loose tile. There's always and a cultural issue, too. And right. And yeah. so it's the systems analysis you have to do if you want to fix the problem. Um, so I would hope very much that the state government in Hawaii will not just put this poor dude in a box and make him like sort files for the rest of his career or fire him, but that they will take a broader look at how the system works at the civil defense education side, you know, um, and uh, and at what, you know, what it is that they are trying to achieve when they send out that kind of warning and use all of that systemic understanding to come up with a better solution. And I would imagine that at the end of that process, there will be, you know, some kind of redesign of the user interface mm-hmm. of this piece of software. But to me, that's just one little piece of fixing the problem. All right. I'm sure I want to go on to the next topic. Just get on with it. Um, so the Wall Street Journal uh, and two uh, great co- former colleagues of mine, 
had this really interesting story. At least I think some of us. You're giggling already. Some of us find it more interesting in this podcast. Yeah, Tammy's like. I think Susan and I are like this is bazonkers. Um, So the story is that. Uh, the FBI warned Jared Kushner about his relationship, and also we should say his wife has a relationship uh, with a woman named Wendy uh, uh, Dang Murdoch, uh, and she is the former wife of Rupert Murdoch, uh, executive. Uh, uh, I think he's the executive chairman, as his title at News Corp, which publishes the Wall Street Journal. Just to get that out of the way. But um, Wendy Murdoch is this very prominent uh, uh, Chinese American uh, who has known the Kushners for a long time, been friends with them, vacationed with them, uh, and the warning from the FBI, which I think would be characterized in the in the trade as a defensive briefing, essentially said to Kushner, you need to be careful because there are concerns about uh, Wendy Deng Murdoch's ties to the Chinese government and things that she could be doing on the government's behalf, specifically her efforts to try and help build a, a botanical and cultural center, if I'm describing it correctly, next to the U.S. Capitol, which ignited a whole lot of counterintelligence concerns in part because of a 70-foot-tall pole. A decorative pole. That was going to be placed there, which uh, people, I guess, from the FBI and elsewhere said, you know, you could put a microphone or a camera on top of that and have a really great view of the U.S. Capitol. Sometimes a pole is just a pole. Sometimes it's just a pole. Um, But Susan, let me start with you because I think you and I both find this story, like, incredibly interesting. Um, Defensive briefings are not uncommon. Um, but talk about why you they're, think it's... They're not super common, They're not though. super common, right. And it's not super common that you would have a senior advisor to the president and getting a defensive briefing about a very prominent public figure. So, Susan, talk about why this this story struck you as so uh, um, significant. Yeah, so I um, I was also in the um, this is bananas camp of the <laughs> rational security email thread um, just because I think there's so many like just sort of weird spy story stuff embedded. I do think we should begin by noting that there is a really, really troubling history in the United States, including a relatively recent troubling history about treating Chinese Americans with heightened suspicion regarding sort of counterintelligence issues. Um, so Wendy Deng is a U.S. citizen, but there's there these situations have arisen in the past in which somebody is a dual citizen um, and sort of are alleged to have particular ties to the Chinese government, and that has in some cases turned out to be untrue. So I just think that like we should at least put that out there of you know look there is there's a failure right here and um, assuming someone's loyalties based on their um, their uh, country of origin or, or dual citizenship, we should always be careful about doing that. <laughs> that said, this is a pretty deeply reported story. Um, it is relatively unusual to give these kinds of sort of counterintelligence briefings to senior officials. It means somebody in the FBI is nervous. So I think there are two things that are, I mean, one, just sort of the details of the story, right? So she's, <laughs> one, alleged to have sort of ties to the Chinese government. Two, China's trying to spy on us using an arboretum. Three, you know. <laughs> Whatever it takes, man. She was married to Rupert Murdoch. She's also been tied to Vladimir Which, Putin romantically. Oh, she's good right. friends with Ivanka that. and Jared. Some people have speculated that she maybe was um, that Tony Blair was involved in the end of her marriage. It's like Wendy Dang is kind of awesome, and yeah. we should just I totally what a hang life. out with her. 
Um, so, you know, sort of, I think on those grounds, it's just kind of like a, um, it's a, a really fascinating story. There are two sort of features of it that I think are, we should care about. Um, one is the idea of sort of, hey, while all of our heads have been turned on Russia, um, turns out China has been up to some stuff too. Um, and so sort of remembering that the scope of counterintelligence threats and frankly, the nations that are the most sophisticated, um, in sort of in, in counterintelligence and espionage, um, is not necessarily Russia. And so, it's important to sort of keep a, a broad scope and, and understand, uh, you know, not get overly invested in country specific solutions or, or thinking about this sort of s- like exclusively as a Russia problem as opposed to just a general, you know, sort of issue of adversaries. We can talk, um, I think we'll get we'll get to in a little bit, sort of this question of a, of a former CIA officer who was arrested yesterday, last night. Um, Although, Susan, usually people state that the opposite direction, you know, China keeps hacking people and and people say well you know it's you got to remember it's not just china they're the noisiest but but you know the people you're really worried about are the people who get in and you don't even know they've been there like the russians right the the, the noisiest loudest most aggressive are not always the most strategically so sure. sophisticated i think that's true on the cyber right sort of like uh, on the cyber question um I, the broader question of sort of especially human intelligence I, I do think though there's a there's a bigger lesson um in terms of this particular story and especially as it connects to to jared kushner and ivanka trump and that's the mix of espionage and lobbying so what what she's accused of is not really being a spy for, for China. What she's accused of is having ties to a government project which might have been used for espionage, whether or not she knew that or not. And then the concern was she was using her influence to lobby for a project. Now, maybe she was lobbying for a project because she had financial interests. Maybe there were espionage maybe interests. Maybe she just deeply believed in the project. She, maybe she just loved that pole. She thought it yeah, was going to be really beautiful. She really wanted it's an arboretum pole. It's a cultural gesture like okay, the National Zoo. Can I shift the focus here? Because I think in some ways this story isn't so much about Wendy Dang Murdoch as it is about Jared Kushner. I, I Like, imagine that you're the FBI counterintelligence division. You have this guy as senior advisor to the president, who has all kinds of international connections that may or may not be shady in financial terms, much less in legal terms. You're concerned about Russian and Chinese influence operations generally. And this is a guy with zero experience in government who may have engaged in actions prior to his stint in government that cause you a little concern about his awareness of these issues. And you say to him, you know, look, you might have to interact with some people that you know, some friends of yours, differently than you did before. You should be sensitive to the possibility that, you know, some of these interactions are not necessarily in the national interest of the United States. Like, that to me says more about the potential concerns of a Jared, Kush- you know, around a Jared Kushner serving in government. Wendy Deng is one of probably a dozen or more people that might fall into that category. So I, I, to me, that's what's interesting about it. And that's what makes it a credible story. Although I agree with you that she is a fascinating character, Shane. And like, if you could get her talking, that would be like a deep 
vein to mine. We would like to have her as a guest. I'd love <laughs> to have her as a guest. You'll surrender all electronics. But I just don't think it's bon- a bonkers story given who Jared Kushner is, what he was doing before, the fact right. that his family and Ivanka's you know, business were out in China soliciting people for this. Right you know, after the, the election? Right, for the investment visa. Like, There's just lots of grounds for concern here. No, I think that's right. Jared Kushner has a temporary security clearance. He still hasn't passed a full clearance. You know, the uh, they haven't fully divested their assets, right? We still have not demanded that these people who are, quote, volunteer employees in the government, therefore say they are only voluntarily complying with ethics rules. They don't think that they're bound by them as a matter of law. They haven't meaningfully divested from their businesses. And the American people have no insight into the actual nature of those financial transactions. Uh, that You're right. That is the actual bananas part of this, that this has been going on now for almost a year and we're all just kind of shrugging like well Jared and Ivanka gotta make money guys I mean and we're all just hoping that you know these Jared and Ivanka who are actually like very very rich targets for all kinds of influence operations you know that they haven't in fact been exploited in some manner right either because they're too naive or because they're pursuing their own financial interests um, but I, but I also think that your your broader point about China's influence operations is worth spending a little time on because one of the things that w- came out in the national security strategy that we talked about a few weeks ago was that Russia and China are kind of lumped together as these revisionist actors doing bad things, countering American interests, and have to be pushed back against. But when you look at kind of Russian influence operations in the United States and Chinese influence operations in the United States, they're very very different. Mm-hmm. <laughs> um, and we've had some int- it, like, so f- on the one hand, in all of our focus on Russia's influence operations and interference in our electoral process and so on, we shouldn't forget about China. And there's been some interesting reporting in the last week or so, a column by David Ignatius and a column by Josh Rogan, both in the Washington Post, about sort of overt influence operations mm-hmm. um, using, you know, funding through uh U.S.-based Chinese-American organizations, um, and all of the cyber stuff that we've talked about a few times on the show. But, you know, but it's also not clear what the Chinese goal is here in the way that we seem to have a better understanding of the Russian goal. Right. Well, to that point, so we reported in the Post last night, and the Times also reported, and has done some amazing reporting in the past on this issue. Uh, a former CIA officer was arrested at New York airport Monday night and then um, appeared in court Tuesday, charged with keeping notebooks filled with detailed information about undercover agents and assets <clears throat> after he left his job. And what we've reported is that this individual has been the subject of a long-running probe uh, whereby the CIA and others think that he divulged this information to Chinese authorities, which then used it to round up a, a huge portion of the CIA's spy network in China back in around 2010. Uh, so, I mean, to, to the point we're raising here, I mean, this is an instance of, I mean, real kind of classic spy versus spy work, which many people in the intelligence community think, in this case, I mean, this guy is almost sort of another version of Alder James. I mean, really divulging a huge amount of information that led to a crippling of American espionage uh, operations in China, uh, and not to diminish what the Russians were doing in our election, but that is a massive blow uh, to what the CIA uh, does around the world and, and very may well have set, set them back for years. Yeah. Um, 
So this is another one of those warnings that uh, good intelligence operations are fragile. And, you know, large numbers of agents who you recruit, they're very difficult to recruit, uh, and they do things for us at very high risk to their own lives and well-being, and uh, they suddenly start disappearing. And the process of reconstructing what happened can be uh, painstaking and difficult, and it can take a very long time, and it's exceedingly painful. Um, and this is one of the reasons, and I don't mean to, to say that you know, Edward Snowden is responsible for this or that Edward Snowden is responsible for, you know, lives of agents being lost. This is one of the reasons why when, you know, people in the intelligence community and people who take national security operations seriously respond so viscerally and so uh, with such anguish and anger uh, at things like the Snowden or Chelsea Manning uh, or WikiLeaks, you know, the sort of indiscriminate release of highly sensitive operations because they have situations like this on their minds. And, um, you know, when, when you don't conduct these operations well and carefully, you know, people do get killed. And that seems to be what happened here. Um, and, and it seems to have been a, a very, very big loss of, of a network of agents in, you know, operating in China. All right. Uh, let's move on to our final topic. Um, Le Faire Rousse. There's say that, say that again. Like a French. Rousse. What? Isn't it? Isn't that my French? Yeah. Was that too guttural like German? Yeah, a little German at the end. <laughs> <laughs> La faire rousse. Rousse. <laughs> oh dear. Octone, baby. We're, we're going down the Hogan's Heroes <laughs> road here. <laughs> uh, there's been a lot. Of, there's been some activity in the past couple of years. Um, ben, talk to us about this um, very intriguing story that just posted on BuzzFeed um, involving money transfers, and it, and it appears to be building on some reporting right that this team has done before. So walk us through yeah, this so, because this is going to get some attention, I think. So, yeah, so this uh, story posted literally a few minutes before we started recording, and I, I have only had time to sort of digest it a little bit. And so my uh, – so this is tentative, but I, I actually – I've had my eye on this reporting stream for a while. This is coming out of BuzzFeed. Uh, the reporters are Jason Leopold and Anthony Cormier. And, you know, while the uh, the whole press corps has been sort of focused on, you know, that Trump Tower meeting or the sort of the latest tidbit you can get about these kind of collusive possible meetings or, uh, you know, these guys have been doing that old classic reporter thing of trying to follow the money. And they uh, they actually seem to have some, unlike a, a lot of the stories, which I believe are coming from the defense bar and congressional uh, sources, these guys seem to have some real uh, law enforcement sources with active investigative threads going on. And uh, what these stories involve is suspicious activity reporting by Citibank, which is Russia's banker in the United States. Uh, regarding a whole string of wire transfers uh, to and from the Russian embassy and personnel involved in it, including 
one U.S. Uh, uh, Russian ambassador to the United States, Sergei Kislyak, who received $120,000 10 days after the election of Trump. Um, and that Citibank appears to have flagged this as suspicious, can't imagine why, to U.S. regulators. And then five days after Trump's inauguration, someone uh, tries to withdraw $150,000 in cash from the embassy's account, and uh, Citibank stops the transaction and reports it. That was um, me. I needed cab fare. Yeah, <laughs> right. Um, and then... Um, there's a very large pattern of money going to the Russian Cultural Center. Um, and there's also $2.4 million uh, in transactions to a small home improvement company controlled by a Russian immigrant living not far from uh, the Russian embassy. Uh, and so when you put it all together, I mean, I look, there's, it's possible it could all be legitimate, although it's not entirely obvious from reading the story what the, what the, how that would be. But it's possible it could all be legitimate. It's also possible this is, you know, Vladimir Putin's Russia. So I think one possibility is that it could be routine graft uh, of the sort that, you know, the Putin cabal is famous for. Uh, another possibility is that it could be intelligence operations money, but intelligence operations money that has little or nothing to do with La Ferrousse, save that it is to some degree coincident in time with it. But one thing I think you would be uh, foolish if you were Bob Mueller to exclude the possibility of is that this could be walking around money in connection with the thing you're investigating. And so one of the most interesting dimensions of the reporting stream to me is that they do seem to have nailed down that Mueller is investigating these transactions uh, and that the Senate Intelligence Committee is investigating these transactions. And so I, I think it's, it, you know, the, their earlier story from earlier in the fall got a lot of criticism for, uh, you know, maybe just being uh, something completely innocuous. And I, I was more interested in that story than, than a lot of other people were at the time. But I think at this point, it's probably time for people to, you know, at other publications to start taking this reporting stream pretty seriously. A question for you as you read this story, does this suggest that the famously tight ship of the Mueller investigation is leaking? Um. It does not, to me, anyway, though it's certainly possible. Uh, suspicious activity reporting goes to the Treasury Department. Uh, and um, I think if this were a Mueller leak, you would have – nothing, by the way, is attributed to anybody associated with Mueller. Um, but if it were a Mueller leak – you would probably have some indication as to Mueller's thinking about this. And you've got none. You only have the fact that he seems to have these transactions and this reporting stream um, and that he seems to be looking at it. And so my assumption is um, the law enforcement sources, I would assume, are either uh, are probably treasury law enforcement could um, they be bank sources? Uh, well, there are ideas. I haven't read this. There's, there, so. there, there's specific in all three of these stories. This one, 
the one in the fall that got a lot of criticism, and the one in the spring that actually identified a series of wire transfers that should then showed up in the Manafort indictment. In all of them, there are specific attri- uh, lines attributing it to law enforcement sources. So I think that is not, like, probably not Citibank people. But I, I think there's something, there's, there's a serious body of information here. To me, the question is, is it a Putin graft story? Is it a Russian intel story? Or is it a Lafayre Russe story? And I don't, you know, I don't purport to know the answer to that. Um, let's talk about another development on uh, the Russia probe. Uh, Steve Bannon is going to be interviewed. Who? Yeah, remember him? <laughs> he had nothing to. He had nothing to do with the election. He was, oh no, he's he was a, man a very who small for, part of the campaign. He worked for the president briefly. He was um, a coffee boy. Yeah, coffee boy. Uh, he's going to be. He was has talked already to the House Intelligence Committee um, on Tuesday, and I think he's going back again. We're recording this Wednesday. Um, but there's news that he has been. Uh, well, he may have been subpoenaed, but now there's a. a breaking story that he may be negotiating to just do an interview with the special counsel, Bob Mueller, rather than get a grand jury subpoena. Um, Susan, let me ask you, I mean, what, what what is the significance at this point of Bannon coming in for an interview? Uh, and, and, and what would it mean if he was doing grand jury versus actually just talking to Bob Mueller in his office? So last week we talked a little bit about sort of what what does the fact that Mueller maybe wants to uh, interview Trump, what that might mean in terms of where the investigation is and if it's going to move forward. I think this is, or if it's getting close to wrapping up, I think this is another sort of... Uh, uh, you know, piece of evidence in the this investigation is actually nowhere near finished uh, uh, sort of side mm-hmm. of the equation. Um, you know, so like Mueller went in and he, he uh, sat with the hipsy for 10 hours yesterday. He um, didn't appear to answer many of the substantive questions. He sort of he asserted a, a very broad and vague executive privilege over his time in the White House and during the transition. Um, this has been a strategy that we've seen a lot of people in the Trump camp use, which is that in the invest in the congressional investigations, they assert privilege in context in which uh, there doesn't necessarily appear to be a clear legal grounding for it. Although, depending on sort of what they're what communication they're trying to protect, it's it's possible, right? You can't just sort of say it's that it's absurd on its face. Um, as and they decline to answer particular questions, knowing full well that the majority, um, which has the the power to sort of issue subpoenas and decide whether or not they're going to, um, you know, have contempt orders or, or or possibly take it to court. Um, uh, knowing full well that they aren't going to sort of call the bluff. And so they've used it sort of as a shield to do this kind of, well, executive privilege, attorney-client privilege, presidential communications privilege. They just kind of throw it out there. What was interesting about Bannon yesterday is that apparently whatever went down was frustrating enough to Conaway, who is sort of the acting head of the um, uh, Hipsy Russia investigation, to issue a subpoena to him during the uh, during the uh, the course of the testimony. So that does maybe demonstrate that sort of on the um, on the congressional side and congressional majority, they are a little bit running out of patience here. Bannon still declined to answer the questions even after the subpoena. So we'll like query what happens next and if they actually sort of are, are planning on backing this up. Um, 
The other thing I'm not sure that I think is interesting and notable, but I'm not sure what to read into it, is why Mueller decided to subpoena Bannon instead of just invite him in for a voluntary interview. Everybody else has been invited in for a voluntary interview. Ordinarily, the answer is because he thought Bannon wouldn't come um, if he hadn't been or he had declined to sort of uh, to agree to cooperate voluntarily. That hasn't been like that's one piece of this that hasn't been reported yet of, well, did they ask and Bannon declined or is there some reason why Mueller believed Bannon wouldn't uh, wouldn't sort of cooperate? So that, that's one piece that I I don't quite know what the answer is, but I'd be interested if you have a, an explanation for that one. I think there's three possible explanations, two from the point of view of the witness and one from the point of view of the prosecutor. The witness points of view are really two sides of the same coin. So you issue a subpoena if you have to compel. And there's two possible reasons why you would have to compel. One is that the witness is not being cooperative and kind of refuses to do it because he doesn't want to help you, right? Uh, the second possibility, which is a variant of the first, is that the witness wants cover for coming in and cooperating. He doesn't want it to look to the White House like he's going, you know, cheerfully walking in to rat you out, rat at, rat out anybody or to help the prosecutor. So he says, "I'm happy to come in, but I need, I, I want a subpoena for cover to do it." Um, those of us who've done FOIA requests, there's a variant of this. You ask for a document from a government official and it says, I'm happy to give you that document. I need a FOIA request. Um, and so you give a FOIA request and then you get the document. Um, uh, the other version from the point of view of the prosecutor, which may be – I don't know which is the explanation here, is that – this is a little bit technical, but – under the federal rules of evidence, uh, rules of criminal procedure, um, if you um, – if a witness comes in and gives an interview and then turns around at trial – of somebody else's trial, that is, is called as a witness and contradicts the statement that he gave you during the investigation – if that statement is testimony before the grand jury, the grand jury t transcript is admissible evidence by way of impeaching the witness. However, if it is an FBI interview, the 302, the memorandum of interview, and the agent's testimony are both hearsay and are not admissible. Hmm. And so if you don't trust the witness. So if you think Steve Bannon is a serial liar. <laughs> or if you think that Steve Bannon for some reason. might come in and say what you want to hear and then at trial say what Trump wants to hear. Unimaginable. This is what prosecutors call locking in testimony. And you lock in testimony by putting somebody in front of a grand jury, not by – um, uh, not by doing an FBI interview. Huh. And, and, and I don't know which is the explanation for this, but um, one is suspicion of the prosecutor on the part of the witness, and the other is suspicion of the witness on the part of the prosecutor. And, and, is, and does the prosecutor in that case have to have some justification for saying why he suspects the witness? Might be inconsistent in testimony, or is just like nope. Yes, no. The, it's all the issuance of the subpoena is a, is a is a, uh, a, a the, you know that's at the discretion of the prosecutor. Okay. And if this is somebody, look, you know they have a, they have no reason to think you're going to be difficult. You're uh, or they just don't need they don't think they need your testimony at trial, right? 
um, then they probably are perfectly happy just to have an interview with you. But if they don't trust you and they think they need your testimony at trial, they will sometimes try to lock it in by putting you in front of a grand jury. None of it sounds good. I'm just going to say. I did see someone tweet that they hope Bannon Schur- one of Bannon's shirts is a good lawyer. <laughs> <laughs> All right, let's move on to object lessons. Um, Tamara, why don't you go first? I have – I'm such a DC geek, so I feel like this is a really cool object lesson, and you guys are going to laugh at me. This is so old school. Check it out. It's a bound copy published by the U.S. government publishing office of – the minority staff report uh, released by the Senate Foreign Relations Committee last week on Russian interference. Hot, hot copy. Do you have to stand in line to get that? <laughs> Are you going to get that signed? Like, get better pardons? I know. Too. Is there really? a rush on it next to Fire and Fury at Kramer Books? But, you know, look, it's – it's. Um, I, I'm not bringing it just because it's cool to have a bound copy. I'm, I'm bringing it because um, it is – Are you in it? Not that I know of. Mm. You didn't Washington read it? <laughs> oh, <laughs> there's no index, so I can't check for my name. <laughs> that, we'll get to a PDF. Did you look for right? rational security? Right. You can search the PDF <laughs> version. Um, no, I, I I think this is a really um, interesting product because, it, first of all, while we have all these congressional investigations going on, here the minority staff of the Foreign Relations Committee just did a very factual, thorough, straightforward look at uh, the Russian government's influence operations in not just in the United States, but in Europe and in a forward looking way. Like, this is what they are up to. This is how different governments have tried to respond. You know, this is how the threat seems to be evolving. It's all just, you know, helpful um and it's and it's not about uh kind of who's to blame for what happened in 2016 um and i think that it's very interesting to me and we've you know we've talked about this over the last year is that on russia in the senate is one of the few places where you see a little more bipartisan consensus and yet This report was a minority staff report and the majority did not participate and did not sign on. And so it makes me wonder whether there's been some shift um, among Republican senators on concerns over Russia, some softening, how much of that is related to their other efforts to, you know, work with Trump or get along with Trump or move Trump um, and how sensitive he is to that. Uh, but I, I just think it's a, it's a really interesting report. I'm still digesting it. It's like 200 pages long. Um, but I think it's going to be one of those documents that will have value, you know, um, for a long time to come. Yeah. All right, Ben. So here, this is an object lesson after action report. Last week, uh, I, um, Posed, I read an email that had been received by uh, our intrepid pianist, Sophia Yan. <laughs> because uh, you have to be intrepid to be a pianist for rational security. <laughs> indeed. Um, and uh, the, the, uh, the email was a request for a coffee date from a rational security listener. And uh, I... He's, he's the intrepid one. He is the intrepid one. I like serious respect for the author of that, of, of that email. Um, and um, 
I said I was going to post a Twitter poll where people could vote on whether Sophia uh, should go on a coffee date with the intrepid suitor. And um, I want to say, first of all, I we got some angry responses to this. We did get some angry responses. Um, from people who thought uh, that maybe Sophia wasn't in on the joke and I was uh, sharing a private email uh, against her will or that I was talking about her dating life against her will or her coffee drinking habits. I want to assure everybody that uh, Sophia was in on the joke. We would never have done this without her permission. She signs off on all the, the joke band names at the end. Uh, yeah, we, <laughs> Free we, proof. Okay, maybe not that. Uh, yeah, that's not true. But, um, well, come on, and of course Post approved. She even retweeted the Twitter poll in question which Twitter informs me has 11 hours and 18 minutes left. As I don't expect the numbers to change uh, between now and and when this uh, Twitter poll ends, I can hereby announce that, uh, uh, yes, Sophia should go out for coffee with the email correspondent who liked her piano playing on the podcast, has won decisively, actually, as of now, 63% uh, support the date and only 37% oppose it. Uh, and so, uh, you know, I, I think, you know, we'll, we'll see what Sophia ends up doing, but, um, uh, you know, the yes people, people are definitely pro the email or at least among the 808 people who voted in this, uh, uh, in this important piece of public opinion research. <laughs> the real question is whether we're going to record the date for the podcast. <laughs> I think we should, I, you know, I think this would be the first rational, the first known rational security date. And therefore, I am mm-hmm. casting my vote in favor of it. Um, we, have, we have the first lawfare-induced wedding coming up oh. relatively oh, soon. That's a high bar, um, So we're, we're uh, I, I'm, for Shane's idea of a rational security dating service. Nobody's uh, sponsoring Shane, us. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Shane, uh, by the way, has an additional Sophia yes. Yan-related announcement. You hear Sophia play every week, but you can hear her play something different, and you can see her play live on February 1st in New York at the National Opera Center at the Mark A. Skorka Hall. I hope I'm pronouncing that correctly. Anyway, at the National Opera Center in New York on February 1st, uh, and it is New York Winter Love Stories. It is um, featuring a Manhattan story written and performed by the virtuoso violinist Eiko Kano. Uh, there are a number of other uh, artists and musicians playing in addition to Sophia, who I think said she's playing all, from all living composers. I believe it's all modern music living yeah, composers. Right. Uh, so uh, check that out. You can uh, The doors open at 630. You can get tickets online. We will also post on the show page uh, a link to uh, the event page on Facebook, which will help you get the tickets. Uh, but yeah, if you are in New York, or even if you're not in New York, go to New York on February 1st and see Sophia Yen live and in person. It'll be great. And that brings us to the end of the podcast. Rational Security is a production Are, are you sure you want to end the podcast? Why? Do we have a drop Are you down sure, Shane? Oh! <laughs> <laughs> I see what you did there. <laughs> it's like, what did I forget? <laughs> it's been known to see? happen. It's easy to make a Clippy mistake. says, it seems like you're trying to end the podcast. Of course I want to end the podcast. <laughs> Damn it. <clears throat> no, really, I didn't forget anything, did I? No. <laughs> okay. I can do the outro. <laughs> 
Rational Security is, of course, a production of Lawfare. You can find our show page somewhere. Um. <laughs> just, just to clarify this, eventually, eventually we will take down the Spaghetti on the Wall page yeah. and we'll move it all. Uh, but, you know, life is complicated. Yeah. So for now, just accept that there's this Spaghetti on the Wall page just that Google. hosts Rational Security and that's where our show page is until I get around to figuring out what to do about that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Just Google it. Just find it. Uh, you can follow us on Twitter at RATL Security. You can find us on Facebook. When you download the podcast, please remember to leave a rating and a review. It helps other people find it. Our audio engineer this week is Matthew Kahn. The show is produced and edited by Jen Patya Howell. Our music this week performed by Wendy Dang Murdoch and the Magical Mystery Arboretum. Excellent. It's oh, <laughs> pretty good, right? Oh, that's sick I like gotta it. see that van. Yeah. Only if Sophia Yam were actually playing with it, though. <laughs> On behalf of our friends, my friends, your friends, everyone's friends, Tamara Coffin, Wittis, Ben Wittis, and Susan Hennessy, I'm Shane Harris. We'll talk to you next week. Bye bye. Flexibility is great. That's why there's yoga. Flexibility for your insurance coverage is great too. That's why there's United Healthcare Insurance Plans. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, United Healthcare Insurance Plans offer flexible, budget friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. One of these plans may be right for you if you're, say, between jobs, coming off your parents' plan, turning a side hustle into a full hustle, or even missed open enrollment. Want more flexibility? Find out more about United Healthcare Insurance Plans at uh1.com. 